0: If you will go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, and then you may want to find John chapter 19 as well. We're going to look at two two, uh, passages this morning, Luke chapter 2 and John 19 a little bit later on. This may not be the most popular way to begin a Mother's Day sermon, but believe it or not, from time to time, moms make mistakes. I knew it. Wouldn't get a bunch of amens, you know. (laughs) Sometimes the mistakes may be harmless. They may be those hilarious Epic mom fail moments that that you know you see on social media websites that become popular. And I asked my wife Allison if she could think of a funny mom fail of her own that I could use in my sermon illustration or my sermon introduction today, and her response was not for me. I'm a perfect mom. <laughs> see, I already knew that. I was just making sure she knew that. We know that even the best moms make mistakes. Some are harmless mistakes. Some are hilarious. Some mothers may make mistakes that are more serious. But even though mothers aren't perfect, they still deserve love, honor, and respect. In fact, they deserve to be treated by their children the way Jesus Christ treated his mother. Jesus is always our example. In every aspect of our lives, Jesus is our example. With every relationship we have, Jesus is our example. And so this morning, I want us to look at a couple of places in Scripture that give us insight as to how Jesus treated Mary. We'll look at one time when he was a boy and another time when he was a grown man. The first passage we'll look at is Luke chapter 2, and we'll look at verse 41 through 52 while Jesus is still a boy. We'll read at verse 41 in just a minute. Joseph and Mary were God-fearing Jews who did their best to raise their family according to God's law. And one thing that meant was that they traveled to Jerusalem every spring to keep the feast of Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they had a trip to Jerusalem and a Passover week that they would never forget. Let's look at verse 41 through 45 of Luke chapter 2. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in a company or in the company, went a day's journey. And they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him." It may seem strange for us to read this part of this story, and in our culture and in our time, it's strange for us to even think of how could Mary and Joseph even leave Jerusalem in the first place without knowing that Jesus was was not there? How did this even happen? But we've got to understand this was a much different time, much different culture. They had different customs than what we have today. They didn't travel to Jerusalem in a, you know the family station wagon or the family minivan and, and were all together the whole time. But the way they traveled during this time was that they would caravan with a large group, with many families, and it would be a large group walking to Jerusalem together. Some may have had the aid of, of small animals like donkeys and things like that, but most people walked and in this larger group oftentimes the women would walk together in a group and then the men would walk together in a group so it wasn't like your whole family was together in a group Uh, so they're split up a little bit and so when this big group set off for nazareth mary and uh, mary and joseph both assumed jesus was either with the other one or perhaps just with some other family members or with the other children It was not strange at all during this time for their 12-year-old not to be right by their side the entire time. Mary and Joseph are not bad parents. That was just the custom and culture of the day. But when this caravan stopped for the night, the family units would come back together. And that's when Joseph and Mary realized, Jesus is not here. I thought he was with you. Well, I thought he was with you. He's not with the children, he's not with any other family members or any other friends that they came with, and they searched diligently for him, but he wasn't there. So verse 45 tells us that when they couldn't find him, they turned around and went back to Jerusalem, and I rather suspect they did so immediately without sleeping that night. That's what I would have done if I left my 12-year-old son in the largest city in the region. Without me there, I'm, I'm going back there to find him as soon as I can. I can only imagine what was going through their minds as they raced back to Jerusalem, wondering where he was, hoping he was okay, probably feeling a little guilty and irresponsible. It's one thing to lose a son, but they lost God's son. Where is he? So verse 46 and verse 47 tell us it's going to take them three days of searching before they even find him. Verse 46, and it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. He was in the temple the whole time. That's like leaving your kid at church. I've known someone that's happened to before. The mom thought he was with the dad and the dad thought he was with the mom and he was left at church for a while. That might scar a child depending on how you know how scary the church might be when all the lights are off, I don't know. but I've known that to happen to someone. The fact that Jesus was in the temple doesn't surprise us at all. It doesn't shock us. The, where Jesus was found is not surprising, wasn't shocking. What shocked everyone was that this 12-year-old boy had spiritual insight and comprehension of the law of Moses that went well beyond his years. Here's this 12-year-old boy who is sitting with the greatest theological minds of the time and he's understanding what they're saying. He is asking questions they probably can't answer. He's answering their question in deep ways that they may have not ever even thought about before. He's having these deep spiritual conversations and doing much more than just holding his own. And people were amazed at this 12-year-old boy. They were astonished. And look at verse 48 through 50. Even his parents were astonished. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. Mary, like the other people, were uh, Mary was amazed at what was going on, at the things Jesus was saying. And I'm sure... Uh, She watched for a minute as these conversations and learning were going on. But then she kind of sort of rebukes Jesus in a way in verse 48. It's not a harsh scolding or anything like that, but it's just the the natural heart of a mother uh, who's lost her son for a few days. Why why, why have you done this to us? We've been worried sick about you. We've been searching, sorrowing for for days. And Jesus' response was not arrogant. It was not disrespectful. It was not out of line. It was perfect. He understood at this point in his life who he truly was. God's only son. And he was about his heavenly father's business. And I think it's interesting in verse 48, you can see how Mary says at the end of the verse, your father and I have been looking for you. But Jesus says in verse 49, I've been about my father's business. He understood when he was 12 that Joseph, in no disrespect, was just his earthly guardian. He was God's son. You and my father have been looking for me. I've been doing my father's business. Well, Mary and Joseph don't understand this answer. Verse 50 tells us that. It's another kind of interesting thing in the story here is, you know, most teenagers think they know more than their parents. I was a teenager once, and I knew more than mom and dad. And I know all the teenagers sitting here today, you know more than your parents. But as you grow up, you realize your parents deserve a little more credit than you probably gave them. But Jesus was the only teenage boy who ever lived who definitely knew more than his parents. There's no doubt about it. And they don't understand what he's saying here. They don't know what he's talking about. He knew more than them. He was wiser than them. He was smarter than them. At 12. So how do you think he treated them then? Look at verse 51 and 52. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The Son of God was subject to his earthly parents who didn't know as much as he did. But Luke emphasizes the fact that he still submitted himself to their authority he still obeyed, he still placed himself under their control because in his infinite wisdom, he knew that was the proper order of a home. He knew that's the right way to be a 12-year-old and a 13 and 14 and 15-year-old. Young children and teenagers, you should learn from the example of Jesus here. Jesus willingly submitted to the authority of his mother. In all of the great wisdom that he had, he understood that it would please his heavenly father if he honored his earthly mother. This is what God wants from me. And even though I'm smarter than her anyway, I'll be subject to her. Because she's my mother. And that's the way it ought to be. Young children and teenagers, you can please God the same way that Jesus did. If you have respect for your parents and you honor them and you obey them as the Bible says and you have that attitude of submission, then you're doing what Jesus did here. You're honoring them and that's a godly thing. You can serve God as a young person. You don't have to grow up to serve God. You can do it right now. You say, yeah, Brother Map. that's when he was 12. He honored his mother. He honored his father. But he grew up. How did the adult Jesus treat Mary? Let's look at John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we'll look at verse 23 through 27. And In John chapter 19, Jesus is now about 33 years old. He's no longer that 12-year-old boy. He's now a man. And he's enduring the greatest trial of his life, the crucifixion. And sometimes when things are difficult, people have a tendency to snap. People have a tendency to maybe take frustrations out on people, to be selfish, uh, especially if they're going through something hard. Uh, We can be rude to people, especially people that are even closest to us. Sometimes that's the way we act and, and, and treat people during our toughest trials. That's not the way Jesus did. That's not what he did. We'll look at verse 23 through 24 first and and we'll begin and we'll jump into the story. We're going to see some Roman soldiers and how they treat Jesus. So verse 23 through 24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. When Jesus was being crucified, the soldiers took his garments and they divided them up, and then they cast lots to see who would win his, his tunic. Um, this was not unlike Roman soldiers taking spoils from battle the soldiers were allowed to do this it was it was part of their pay they were allowed to take things from crucifixion victims and we're told that they divided these things into four parts which makes a whole lot of sense because normally there were four soldiers that made up the Roman execution squad so each soldier would get one article of clothing and these these items were probably Jesus' sandals his belt his head covering and then his outer robe and then we're told that the inner robe the inner tunic was one piece it was seamless And so they don't want to rip it. And so they play a game of chance to see who the winner would be. If you think about what's going on in their midst, that there's a man being crucified and other men on his sides, they're being crucified. It's haunting and unthinkable and barbaric that these soldiers could stand there making decisions about belts and sandals and throwing lots over who's going to get the man's inner tunic when he is up here suffering and dying. As Jesus hung dying for their sins, they were dividing his clothes. It's a pretty awful perspective on life. But sadly today, there are many, many people who have the same perspective. There are a lot of people in our world who are much more concerned with meaningless, worldly things that will pass away, like belts and sandals, than paying attention to the fact that the Son of God bore their sin and shame on Calvary's cross. Instead of noting the fact that Jesus suffered and died for them and took their place, so many people go through life unconcerned, indifferent, and apathetic, just like the soldiers. Oh, we don't care about all this death. Let's let's get some free clothes. Don't live your life that way. Don't be like the bulk of this world who pays no attention to the truth. Take your focus off of worldly things and put your focus on Christ. Set your eyes on Him and what He did for you. If you've never done that, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, I'm encouraging you this morning to repent and trust Him. He hung on that cross for you. He was hanging on the cross for those soldiers who were dividing His clothes. These are sad verses when we think of the the mindset of the soldiers, but the end of verse 24 lets us know there is one remarkable thing about their indifference, and that's that God used it to fulfill Scripture. God used the indifference and apathy of the Roman soldiers to fulfill a Scripture that's from Psalm 22 about the, the garments being divided. God's amazing. He's in control even when men may think they are. And so we get into verse 25 through 27 and we move away from these selfish, apathetic soldiers and we learn there are some female disciples and John himself who are here as Jesus is being crucified. Look at verse 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, And the disciple standing by whom he loved, that's John, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. While the soldiers absolutely did not care that Jesus died, his mother did. And these other women did. And John did. And there's definitely a contrast to be made between the soldiers and the women. The soldiers don't care. Obviously, these disciples do. But notice that in these verses, John does not describe any emotion, any action, or any words of the women or John. They're they're just here in the scene. Instead, he describes the actions and the words of Jesus so the ultimate contrast that John is giving us here is between the soldiers and Jesus I know that Jesus drew some some support and encouragement from the faithfulness and the presence of his mother and from these women and from John but that's not the ultimate point here the point of the verses is to show Jesus's faithfulness to Mary the soldiers were indifferent at death They were selfish. They cared only about themselves, even though they weren't the ones dying. And yet Jesus, while dying on the cross, is concerned about someone else. He's concerned about his mother. And he ensured in one of his final breaths that his mother would be taken care of after his death. He looked at Mary and he said, Woman, behold thy son. And son there refers to John. Jesus wasn't saying, Mom, look at me. Look what they've done to your son. But he's saying, Look at John. Behold your son. We know that from the context because when he tells John, he says, Behold your mother. Mary would become like a mother to John, and John would become like a son to Mary. And Jesus was setting up this adoption, so to speak. And we're told at the end of verse 27 that it it stuck. John took Mary from that very hour, took her to his house. Jesus' words were not given so that John would have someone to watch over him, but so that John could watch over Mary. She came to his home. So why did Jesus do this? Why did he set up this sort of adoption? It's assumed, and I think rightly so, that Mary's husband, Joseph the carpenter, has passed away at this point. After Jesus is 12 years old, and the story we read about him being lost in the temple, that's the last time the the Gospels ever talk about Joseph at all. If Joseph were still alive, there would be no reason for Jesus to set up this adoption because Joseph would still be alive, uh, taking care of her and and doing all of those things that a first-century man would do And so if Joseph is gone, then the responsibility of being the man of the house, is the way we would say it, fell to the firstborn son. That would be Jesus. One author says the traditional role of the oldest son in a Jewish family was to provide for the care of the mother when the husband or the father of the house was no longer around to care for the mother. It seems clear that Jesus here fulfilled his family responsibility as a dutiful son. Assuming Joseph had passed away, that duty fell to Jesus. But now he's about to die. Not only that, but it's the cruelest death imaginable. And if there was ever a little time, ever time to be a little selfish, it'd be right then. But the blood loss... And the sleep deprivation and the dehydration and the scourging and the pain and the mockery and everything that he endured did not reduce his control over the situation and did not reduce the love, the honor, and the respect that he had for his mother. He still performed his sonly responsibility to make sure that Mary would be cared for when he was gone. We saw this one time in our recent study of David's life in 1 Samuel 22 when King Saul was trying to kill David. David still took a moment in that chapter and made sure that his parents were protected and cared for. David's not a child anymore. He's not obeying them in that, so to speak, like a 12-year-old boy or girl would, would obey their parents. They're older. He's older. He's a man in his early 20s who has a lot of problems of his own. Saul is trying to kill him. But honoring his parents was important to him. And he made sure they were protected and cared for and that they were safe. And so we have, when we look at Jesus and we look at David as well as they're older, you're never too young and you're never too old to honor your parents. The way in which that honor is shown may change over time. But honor should always remain. When we're younger, we show that honor and that respect through obedience and through submission, just like Jesus did when he was 12. And you, you children and you teenagers, I'll say it again. Your parents have authority over you, it's the way God set up the home. It's for your good, it's for your benefit. Listen to them obey them, respect them. It's biblical. It's godly. And that's one way, even as a young child, you can serve God. But as we grow older, and our parents grow older as well, then honoring our parents has less to do with childlike obedience and it has more to do with showing care and concern for them as they age. That's what David did with his parents, and that's what we see Jesus doing with Mary as well. As an adult, even while he's dying on the cross, Jesus showed honor to Mary by taking care of her, by showing that concern and that love for her. So even in the life of Jesus with these two stories, we see how honoring parents can shift from obedience to care, but it's always honor. It's always love. And There is no greater example for us about how to honor your mother than the example that Jesus set. Have you ever thought about this? That Jesus Christ, even though he was sinless, honored his mother who was a sinner? Mary was a sinner, just like you and I. Mary needed Jesus as her Savior, just like you and I do. She wasn't perfect. Yet he became submissive to her even though he was her creator. He obeyed her even though the winds obeyed him. He respected her even though he was worthy of all respect. And while taking care of his mother's spiritual needs on the cross, he also made sure that her physical needs would be taken care of when he was gone. Nobody has the perfect mother. I know all of you guys are thinking, but mine's close. But nobody has the perfect mother, but Mary had the perfect son. And her perfect son is our example in all things, including how you treat your parents, including how you honor your mother. Maybe you're young enough where that means obedience and submission, then do it. Maybe you're old enough where that means care and concern. But either way, honoring your mother is Christ-like. Would you stand? Let's bow for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our mothers. We pray that we would bestow honor upon them as your son did to Mary. We, we are thankful for these uh, stories in your word that we can learn from, and we thank you so much for Jesus, for his perfect example, and most of all for what he did for us on the cross. And We ask uh, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.